Well, here we are. We're like two weeks away from launch day. And uh, I want us to just ask God to help us to hear his voice and surrender ourselves to what he wants us to do, both individually and, and collectively. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, communion, holy communion, as we kind of gather ourselves together, commit ourselves to one another and to God as we prepare for February the 26th. Last Sunday, I shared a message on what was the word? Huh? You're not here, so you have a pass. It was a Greek word. Agape, the love of God as opposed to other forms of words that expresses love. So this morning we're going to focus on a word that's very closely associated with love, with agape. Um, you know, Jesus Christ came to seek out and to save the lost. Those actually, the word means lost is those who are perishing. You know, and it fits John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish. There's, there's a negative to avoid. There's a positive to receive. But Jesus came to a, a world that was already broken and it needed healing. So this was his mission. He forgave those who were opposed to him. He blessed those who cursed him. He, he even prayed for the Father to forgive the people that were killing him before he took his last breath. Because he knew that they were broken people and even said, Father, forgive them because they really don't realize what they're doing. He saw through their anger and their resentment and the, this whole conniving thing to set him up and to lie about him and to torture him and yet... He's hanging on the cross, and he knows what's going on there is because they're broken, and he's asking the Father to forgive them. In the opening lines of John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, it's a great, one of the great sections of the Bible is John chapter 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Logos was God. And then you get down to verse 14, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. What's the rest of it? Full of grace and truth. The two elements that work in salvation, grace and truth. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 here in just a moment. But you think about truth, people believe what they believe is true. They trust truth and faith go hand in hand. You don't believe in something if you don't believe it's true. So God works through grace and truth to draw people who are away from him to himself. Now, I asked a couple of people this morning, and I asked, I think, three people as a whole, what is the definition of grace? And they had trouble coming up. You know, it's like, okay. It's a wonderful word, isn't it? Grace. You know what it means? Who said unmerited favor? Yes. That is, that is the most common reference or def definition of grace. It is the unmerited favor of God. But then you have favor. And what does that mean? 
and the unmerited favor. We're going to look at an extended uh, definition of grace, but that's what I'm going to be sharing this morning is, what is the grace that we have all been given to us that's part of our salvation? Before I take you to Ephesians 2.8, though, let me just stop off at the very first chapter of Ephesians and read a few verses, I think, starting around verse 6. And follow this because there's words associated with grace. We're going to take a study of grace today. But I want you to catch the words that are associated with grace in these three verses. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he had made us accepted in the beloved, in Jesus. He's referred, this is the beloved, the, the loved one, Jesus, the beloved one. In whom, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And when you look at, by the way, the word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. It's an interesting word. It is hard to define because, you know, the unmerited favor of God. But how does that work in our salvation? Look at these words associated with grace. For the glory of his grace, the doxa of his grace, the heavy value of his grace. And then you get down to the riches of his grace. And some other things that you're accepted in the beloved. You have the forgiveness of sin, the redemption through his blood. And look at verse 8. You have this abounded toward you in all wisdom and prudence. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 where grace again appears prominently. Probably the most recognized verse on grace. Ephesians 2 8. And I would love to just read... 8 and 9, but why don't we just start at verse 1? How's that? It's great, great section of Scripture. As for you, this is the before, he describes the before. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the cosmos, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the evil one, the enemy, our adversary. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I like the way King James starts verse 4. But God. Isn't that a great transition? This is so bleak, so depressing to read these first verses because it's just like we're helpless, we're hopeless. We're all in a place where we deserve wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. And, and this morning I'm going to connect those two words together a little bit, mercy and grace. But God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ or with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you realize that phrase is before verse 8? It's repeated in verse 8. But the, the, the Lord who is rich in mercy saved us from that deadness, from that place of alienation because of his grace. 
And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, talking about future plans for us, here it is, that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his, what is it? Grace. He's talking about your saved by his grace. But then he talks about in the future, God wants to really display his grace in an abundant way. I can't wait to experience that, right? The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here's verse 8. You've heard it many times. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Verse 5 and verse 8 We're saved by his grace. We're saved by grace through faith. It is the grace of God. It is the gift of God. When you think about the gift of God, a gift is something that didn't cost you anything, right? But it costs the person who's given you the gift. And so it says in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So this is the gift of God. It's not of us. And when you look for a definition of grace, this is found in BibleStudyTools.com. This is an extended definition of grace. It is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. Max Lucado, I love to read his stuff. He has a book titled, I love his title, Grace, More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. You know, I kind of got reprimanded one time when someone asked me, he says, how are you doing? I says, better than I deserve. And they kind of reprimanded me. Well, yeah, you deserve that. Okay. So I don't tell them that anymore. But I still think that I'm better than what I deserve. That I know what we all deserved. But listen to that. More than we deserve, but greater than we imagine. I want that part too, don't you? So this is grace through faith. And when you think about it, faith is built on truth. Truth produces faith. And we can believe and trust that. And it's the work of God in our souls to save us. It's, it's not our effort. It's not because we did something. We received the gift. That's, that's exactly what we did. We received the gift. We didn't do anything for it. It's all of God and it's not about us. We kind of heard that in the Sunday school class, didn't we? What it means is we are his workmanship, his handiwork of creation, created in Christ Jesus to live his kind of life, a life of good things, good works, which God laid out ahead of time. So the essential definition of charis in Scripture is this. It's God's disposition to exercise goodwill toward us. 
helpless and hopeless. It's God's disposition to us, not after we're saved, but before we're saved. When we're the worst that we could ever be, he was still looking toward us in grace. I want to give you an example of this. In John chapter 8, there's a story about a woman caught in adultery. You're familiar with it. And probably all the points I'm going to share, you're very familiar. But I want us to look at it a little different. This group of men brought this woman, publicly humiliated her, right there in front of everybody, said they had caught her in the act of adultery. And they challenged Jesus as to what to do with her. Said Moses said that we're supposed to stone her. You know, the interesting thing about this is obviously she didn't commit adultery by herself. But the dude is nowhere around. So automatically, what are these people's motives? I'm going to tell you, I don't think they really wanted to stone her. I don't think they wanted to stone her. Because they could have done that without bringing her to Jesus. It wasn't his call whether they did that or not. They, they had probably some kind of legal standing to carry out that kind of justice. But they didn't bring her to Jesus because they were ready to stone her. They were after him. They were wanting to box him in and try to put him in a conundrum of what to do. And so here it is, yes or no? Are we supposed to stone her or not? Is he going to wink at sin or is he going to hammer her? This was, this was what they thought the options were. They're going to push Jesus into a corner, challenge him whether he's going to have mercy on this woman or he's going to be an exact defender of the law of Moses. Well, he didn't say anything to him. He stooped down and started writing something in the sand, in the dirt. And they were badgering the whole time that he was writing. They kept pleading with him, what's your call here? What are you going to do with her? And he stands up and he says this to them. The one who is without sin throws the first stone. And then he just kneels right down rudely and starts writing in the sand again. Now, I've heard all kinds of people try to tell me what he was writing in the sand. I don't think anybody knows what he was writing in the sand. It is a wonderful thought that he was maybe making a list of these guys' names and out to the side, kind of writing what they had done the day before <laughs> and dating it. But he knelt down and he kept on writing, and one by one it says these people actually came under conviction. It says their conscience started getting to them. They had stones in their hands ready to kill her, but they were as worse, if not, they were as worse as her, but maybe more so. And so he looks up, and all of them are gone. And he asks this woman a twofold question. He says, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? That's, that's the two questions he he asked her, where are they, and is there no one to bring the accusation against you? And her answer was this, no man, Lord. Now, his response is profound. He said, well, 
It's such a nice response, but it goes beyond nice. It is profound. Because here in these two statements, you have mercy and you have grace. This week, I read two different places about this story. And I talked with Larry one day about, I read where someone says, if you reverse these statements that he made, you lose Christianity. And so the order is very important, isn't it? What's the first thing he said? Neither do I condemn you. She said, he said, is there anyone here to condemn you? And she looked around, no. And he says, neither do I condemn you. That was mercy. He was not going to lecture her about what she had done. He just said, I'm not here to condemn you. And isn't that in keeping with what he said in John 3? He said, the Father didn't send me into the world to condemn the world. The world's already, she was already, she was already under enough self-condemnation. She didn't need anybody else to pile in on her. But he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He did not say, go and do not commit adultery again. That would have been so isolated from everything else that she needed freedom from. But he simply says, I'm empowering you by grace that you can live a life differently. Go in that word, receive the power to live your life differently. You have grace and mercy there. Grace to forgive her, I don't condemn you, or mercy to forgive her, and grace to empower her to live a life. See, I think this is where we have a problem in understanding something like grace. It is the gift of God. And we think of gift as being external from us. We, somebody hands us something and we take it. But grace is not external. Grace is internal. It is the work of God. He even said we are his workmanship. In, in reality, he is recreating our soul through his grace to be different. Not to give you added encouragement to try harder and to not do things again and, and stop doing that. He's not giving, he didn't give her advice. It was not a suggestion. Go and try harder. Go and try not to do these things again. He was actually pronouncing upon her grace to live a different life. Not words. He wasn't giving her words. Those statements were power. He was giving this woman power to do what she needed to do with her life. Mercy and grace. Thank God for mercy and grace. Right? God having mercy on us, forgiving us, dismissing our wrong. And see, I think we even think that coming to the Lord and asking forgiveness of sin is kind of like a, a, a transaction. That all of the red, the, the debt that we have on the side of sin is like he wipes that away and then he gives us his assets and it's kind of like a transaction. No, it's a transformation. He washes not our sin away. He, he washes our soul in such a way that we are alive. And we can live our life for him. You know, these two dynamics are so connected. 
when Jesus was talking to this woman, they're so connected. We now know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, right? Making intercession for us. The writer of Hebrews makes this statement in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, now we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted and tested like we are yet without sin. And you know what verse 16 says. Let us therefore, King James says, come boldly. Another says, with confidence. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. God's throne is a throne of grace. How often we look at his throne as a throne of power? But it's exactly the point. Grace is his power at work in us. Grace is the power of God to change our hearts, change our souls. I didn't, I didn't understand soteriology and pneumatology and all of the fancy theological terms when I got saved when I was eight. But I did know this. Something was different with me. How could, how could you figure that out at eight or nine years of age? But my eyes were different. My thoughts were different. My tone was different. Everything about me, it was like I suddenly had this focus on Jesus. And this is what he said. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. It doesn't finish there, does it? Well, watch this last part. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is there anybody in the room that could use that? And he says, this throne is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of condemnation. We have enough of that on our own. He says, you come to the throne of, throne of grace with confidence. He's not going to push you aside, but he knows what you're dealing with. He's been tested with everything you've been tested with. He didn't give in to it, but he knows the power of that that's against you. He knows what it's like to face that. And he says, you're going to find a listening ear, a, a sensitive heart. When you come, you're going to find mercy and you're going to find grace. This analogy is in a, a book about C.S. Lewis I'm reading. And the title of the book is A Shiver of Wonder, A Life of C.S. Lewis by Derek Bingham. And there was an analogy that I read that just fits this about how does God fix us? How does grace save us? He says, suppose my watch was not working well. Would it do any good for me to travel to the town clock and reset the hands to match those with the city clock? You know this would do no good, for the hands of my watch would soon be as far wrong as ever. I must send my watch to the watchmaker, that he may put its heart right, and then the hands will go right. So it is with ourselves and with our children. We must first get our hearts right, and then our hands will go right. And our feet and all else. 
You see, grace takes us to the creator. Grace takes us to our inventor. I heard that someone say that God invented us. I like that. God created us. And grace takes us. And I'll finish up with this. I can't hardly talk about grace this morning without mentioning John Newton. John Newton was known as the great blasphemer. Let me give you a little bit about his life. He was born in England, London. His mother died two weeks before he turned seven years of age. But she had already taught him Scripture. She was a committed believer. She prayed with him. She gave Isaac Watts songs for children. She, she taught him children's songs at that time. That was the, the standard for helping children understand the love of God. And, and she prayed over him, and she prayed that he would one day be called into the ministry. But she died two weeks before his seventh birthday. His dad was a sea captain. And so at the ripe age of 11, his dad took him into the sailing business. Well, you know, sailors were not noted for their decorum. So the child picked up all of the profanity, the debauchery, the coarseness, and they said he became so bad that some of the sailors were embarrassed by his behavior. He ended up being a captain of a ship in the slave industry of England. In 1748, they entered a storm that would last for 11 days. The sails were ripped. Some of the wood was splintering on one side. And the hand-cranked pumps below were constantly being used by the crew to keep the ship from sinking. It was so turbulent that John Newton tied himself to the helm so he could keep his hands on the control of the ship. And while that 11th day, that all that day, he began to think about a passage in Proverbs that his mother gave him, about the things she taught him, and yet he thought he was too far gone. He was just too far away from what he knew his mother was. But see, his mother's prayers were still active. And somewhere during the course of that day, all the way to midnight before the storm started easing off, he, he, he just believed that they were done. The ship was too, too damaged. We're not going to make it. He said that day, on that day, the Lord sent from on high in his own words and delivered me from deep waters. Many years later, as an old man, that was March 21, 1748. He wrote in his diary on March 21, 1805, not long before he died, not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Interesting that Newton, after at the age of 39, felt called to go in the ministry, think his mama's prayers were still working, and became a pastor of an Anglican church, wrote hymns for many times of the lesson of the day and the sermon of the day. He was a hymn writer. But we know what his contribution, his greatest contribution to the church was, right? He wrote his spiritual biography, Amazing Grace.
He partnered with William Wilberforce, who is an advocate to abolish the slave industry of England. And because John Newton knew the horrors of being in that business, his testimony carried a lot of weight. And the Parliament of England abolished slavery without a civil war. He also influenced William Cowper, who was in his church, one of the famed poets, William Carey, missionary. But listen to the words of this song. And I'm not going to give you lyrics that you're familiar with. We know all of You want to put Amazing Grace up there? You know the opening stanza, right? Do you realize there were 13 stanzas? 13 verses. How about that singing a song? You just kind of like sing one song. But he wrote 13. It's a poem that was, began to be set to music. But here's some lyrics you probably haven't seen. Do you have that? The Lord has promised good to me. Are you familiar with this one? We've probably heard this one a little bit. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Here's another one. When this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The verb form of grace means to have joy and contentment. It's kind of like grace brings us to a place of satisfaction. What frustrates us the most? Probably our failings. We're, or we're, we, we feel like we're not getting the breaks in life. We didn't get the job or we didn't get this opening or that relationship went sour and we, we kind of like gauge our worth by some of these things. But grace brings a contentment in the midst of all of that. Here's the last stanza. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Would you stand with me?